what are times where technology, um, economics, development, it's something where we can get our hands on these things. We're not simply in the role of service provider to clients, but have been able to test and in a way breach some of those, those barriers where we're more of a participant and less of simply uh, a service provider. Hello, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today's episode features an interview with Frank Barkow, principal and co-founder of Barkow Leibinger, based in Berlin and New York City. Founded in 1993 by Barkow and Regina Leibinger, the firm uses a research-based approach to architecture and design that allows their work to respond to advancing knowledge and technology. Their projects cover a wide range of scales and building types, including the recently completed Trump Smart Factory in Chicago, the Fellows Pavilion for the American Academy in Rome, and the Tor Total Office High Rise in Berlin. We're excited to share a conversation recorded this spring with Frank about the role of research and design, material explorations, and more. Let's dive in. Today we have with us Frank Barkow from Barkow Leibinger. Frank, thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Just getting started, as an American living in Berlin, you are part of a reversal of the exodus of earlier generations of German architects like Mies and Gropius. What first drew you to Germany in the 1990s? Well, yeah, I think it's a really good question, it's a, and it's a good sort of observation. It's one we've thought about many times um, in the past. Um, I mean, the first reason, of course, was historical. With the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, there was this opportunity. I was in Rome teaching for Cornell. It was a sort of crossroads. Uh, do we go back to the States and practice? Do we go to Germany? And uh, with this sort of uh, relationship of, uh, of course, German architects um, flooding to America in the 30s, uh, leaving Nazi Germany um, for opportunities, uh, Mies van der Goh goes to uh, Chicago famously, Gropius goes to Harvard. Um, where they have flourishing practices for years and years. So for me as an American architect, I mean, Berlin really seemed to be an opportunity for young practices to set up, to rethink what practice could mean uh, for opportunities, the European competition system. We could participate at a you know large scale very quickly in the practice. So um, it was very attractive. Germany uh, particularly Western Germany was a high-tech center. Uh, our interest in fabrication and materiality, the idea of working close with industry um, seemed attractive. So we could uh, move to Germany. And for me at the time, it seemed a much more optimistic and much more um, compelling choice compared to going back to the States at that time. And this is the early 90s and uh, going back to a conventional practice going back to work for somebody, whereas we really had opportunities in Germany to do something quite different. So do you think the local context today influences your practice in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we were in for a little bit of a shock when we first moved there. I mean, I was expecting a kind of second Weimar, an idea of avant-garde and uh, experimentation, and it wasn't. When the wall came down and the East and the West reunified, the politics were relatively um, conservative for reconstructing Berlin. So we had very few opportunities to participate on the center. In the beginning, most of our work was out in the perimeter, out in the periphery, or down south. 
so that was a bit of a shock. At the same time, there was this amazing music scene. There was an amazing art scene in Berlin, still is. And these sort of, I don't know, you know alignments or um, uh, working together with artists, uh, musicians, um, writers we met. The community, by and large, was a great place for us to work as a kind of laboratory in terms of collaboration, in terms of communication, talking with um, other like minds. So in the end, that became a very fruitful place to work and continues to be. So I would say that was a stronger influence in terms of creativity, creation, making, thinking, discussion, discursive. That made the place more interesting than the actual politics of trying to construct in Berlin in the early 90s. So maybe in a similar vein, did your time spent growing up in the rural landscape of Montana have an impact on your approach to design? You've said that your earliest exposure to architecture was mainly the industrial kind of architecture that was around you in Montana. So uh, maybe if that had an impact? Yeah. I mean, Montana was, I mean, it's an incredibly beautiful landscape, which had a huge impact. And architecture per se in Montana was not architecture with a capital A, but it was infrastructure, bridges, dams. I mean, there's a great quote from the artist Donald Judd, who has often said that the greatest built things in America are things like that, are infrastructure, dams, um, bridges, fences, um, agricultural architecture, industrial architecture. So those are the kinds of things that I grew up around, which did have a, a huge impact on me, as well as the landscape. I think the first project we had, uh, one of the first competitions we won in Berlin was the so-called biosphere in Potsdam in a demilitarized site that was crossed by berms, protective berms that the Soviets had built to protect their barracks. So in a way, I had a chance to build a building uh, completely constructed out of landscape. So I was interested in land art when I was a student at uh, Harvard GSD. So I was looking for uh, ways of instrumentalizing these kinds of observations, the things I grew up with. But I think there was a sympathy for construction, um, I I particularly from this quote from Donald Judd, and particularly in terms of capability in America, what and how one could build. And that was something I could translate pretty directly to um, a German or European building culture. So that, that, that worked quite well. And since starting your firm, you've adopted a pedagogy praxis model, both teaching in the U.S. and practicing architecture primarily in Europe. What made you interested in teaching? Well, since I left graduate school, I've been teaching consistently, started teaching for Cornell, and then a few years later we started the practice. So there's, it's always been part and parcel teaching um, and, and the practice. And in a way, I don't... <laughs> I don't teach anything. I set up studios as a form of research for finding something out. There's usually two or three pertinent questions in the setup of the studio. And in that way, the studio overlaps quite closely with um, practice questions we have, which I think is interesting. It makes our practice more vital, and I think it makes our teaching more compelling, more to the point. So I'm not teaching how to do this or how to do that, but it's really about working with the students and having them ask questions we have about material or technology. We ran three studios at Princeton 
recently on housing, on timber high-rises, on megastructure, on cheap old houses that one can buy in America for under $100,000. So do you, you talked about some of the almost like general questions that these studios look into pertaining to some aspects of your practice. Do you have any more specific examples of a project where that research was really directly applied? We'll work in material, so we're working closely with infralight concrete, which is a self-insulated concrete. So I taught a studio in Lausanne in Switzerland uh, where students, I said, here's a material, what can you do with it? How could this apply to housing or affordable housing? So they ran with it. Timber construction, which we're going to be doing here at Rice, is another studio. Timber is high-rise construction. So it's, it's both a question of engineering, it's a question of sustainability, using material. So we'll run those as studios to find out what the capabilities are of this research. I, again, using the academic atmosphere is a place for experimentation also. We're not trying to be bureaucrats about this or you know technocrats. So we're still interested in the sort of idea of uh, creativity, experimentation, but that, that could be a um, particular setup. Some are typological. One of the other students was on megastructures for housing, looked at historical megastructures in Berlin and found them to be um, successful, long waiting lists to get in for cheap housing. Um, so um, compact, um, economical way of building. Um, so we, we looked at some of these historical conditions as something that we might be able to reboot or rethink in a contemporary setting with contemporary building technologies, materials, etc. So, and these, to answer your question, these lap back into the practice. These are typically things that we're working with or around. So there's a kind of back and forth between the, the studio setup and, and the kinds of projects. We're doing a tower and infralight concrete now in Berlin for affordable housing. So that overlapped very closely with the Lausanne studios. Yeah, and to just talk a little bit maybe more about the infra lightweight concrete, it, it got researched in that studio and then now it's being used in a tower for affordable housing, but it also was present in the Smart Material House right. project yeah. for Hamburg. Yeah. And I thought it was very interesting in that project where you kind of said that you chose the material system that you wanted to work with first and then really developed the design after that. So I wondered if maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of that process of design driven by a material already being present from the start. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's really good observation. I mean, that was one of the purest examples of beginning with our structural engineer, Mike Schleich, and beginning to work with our sustainable design engineer, um, Matthias Schuler from TransSolar. And we said, he said, here's a material, um, infralight um, concrete. These are the properties of it, capacities. These are the economics of the material. And if you produced housing, in this case, it was for the EBA, the International Building Exhibition in Hamburg, what would you do? So in that sense, take a material and then began to create a kind of low rise for housing. So we liked it. It's concrete, so you can pour it. So we poured it in a way where it was sculptural. It was three-dimensional. It was thick as a material because the thicker it is, the better it insulates. Yeah. 
And maybe just for the listeners who don't know exactly what infra lightweight concrete is, it's the aggregates are it's slightly different than normal concrete, correct? R- right. The uh, self infra light concrete, the aggregate is uh, clay or recycled glass, which is porous. So if you thought about a piece of lava stone, it's similar. If you put it in a bathtub, mm-hmm. it'll float. It's a third the weight of um, regular concrete. So those were the properties of it and the advantages of it are it's prefabricated it's lightweight it's um, self-insulated which means you don't need to add any other finishes or insulation to it it's flexible you can pour it in different ways so that that was kind of the characteristics of the material so we created three-dimensional pieces which were self-supporting which means meant we didn't need scaffolding and we could stack this stuff up like a house of cards so so in a way that was the principal driver for the project the idea of this is the material and this is how you can use it Um, so that produced a low-rise version of it and now we're producing uh, with the same engineers a high-rise version of the same project and so your built work in the firm spans a wide range of scales and typologies as you've already kind of talked about from pavilions to some industrial buildings like the Trump Smart Factory in Chicago. So how do you translate your design ethos into all these projects across such a varied spectrum? In terms of scalability or? I think I would say in terms of thinking about how you would apply your ethos to something with different functions. Comparatively, the a smart factory versus maybe a residential college, for example. Learning how to maneuver, mm-hmm. I think, how to move around. I mean, also it's something that we cultivate. I mean, we want that, um, you know, from doing um, high-rise in Berlin, which we're working on right now, to doing opera sets for Christoph Waltz, for Fidelio, Beethoven's only opera in Vienna, which will open next week. So I think there is an idea of cultivating that. We also do a lot of installation work, exhibition work, where we're prototyping. So a lot of that work, which works at lo- you know, a smaller scale, are areas of um, experimentation that can scale up to building scales. So I think we never wanted to get cornered into doing one kind of building type in one place. So there's been an idea of moving around as much as we can. We started for industry, we built factories in the 90s and uh, expanded to working more um, urbanistically, working in master plan scale, all the way back to a small installation, say for Serpentine in London. So there has been an idea of looking at different scales, different technologies, materialities, but also different program types different typologies as a way of expanding the practice and in a way making it more um, vital, I would say, also more interesting for us. So I think you've touched on this a little bit, some of the research that happens when you're starting a design, and you talked a little bit about how you incorporate digital fabrication methods, but I was wondering if you could describe just a little bit in more detail some of the research and fabrication methods that go into your design process? Well, um, a lot of it's, yeah, either finding a material or finding a tool to see what it can do. I mean, to be precise, we started, my partner, Regina Leibinger, 
Uh, she comes from a family of machine tool builders, which are machines which work sheet metal. So we started learning about their capabilities, which are laser cutting, bending, folding, now robotics. And that was an introduction to us to fabrication technologies. With that, so at the time, you know, we would send students down there if they had produced a new machine, find out what it could produce and how we could appropriate that technology for making architecture, mostly architectural components. So once you know how to work with these companies, which were quite open to us, we could really expand a whole portfolio of companies. So it could be ceramics. Um, we work with BMW in terms of um, kinetic technologies for fabric. We worked for timber um, fabricators, CNC cutters in the Black Forest. So we continue, what we called was, when we started publishing this with the Architectural Association, we started to create these atlases, atlases fabrication, where when I was a, you know, an intern or young architect in the States, we would work out of building catalogs. And we've been able to completely supersede that. We can produce our own facade systems, our own structural systems, our own furniture systems, all a customer bespoke, particularly with German fabricators, which in German they're called Tuflers, which are kind of tinkerers. So there is a culture there where they are keen to produce things and look for applications. So company Trump, where uh, my wife uh, is her family business, um, they produced um, machines for car companies, aircraft companies, Alessi, Harley-Davidson, <laughs> but they produce very little for architecture. So um, that was something that we could appropriate and use for the construction of our own buildings or buildings for them, which they became very interested in. So I think something you kind of started to touch on maybe a little bit when you were talking about starting to build up this atlas of companies that you could work with for manufacturing architectural components, for example, with ceramics or now maybe with mass timber, it seems like there's this recurring theme of almost taking an archaic material and using it in a very progressive way now. I was wondering if you have noticed that theme in your work, or is that something that you're really consciously trying to do using materials that have been around for a really long time and just reinventing um, yeah, new ways I to really apply them. I really like that idea. I mean, we were sand casting last week with concrete. Instead of casting into sand, we began to um, cast into rubble. Berlin is covered in rubble from the Second World War II, so into broken tile and broken brick into these really beautiful organic walls that we would cast and then tip up. So I like that a lot. Um, ceramics, um, going back to Montana, I grew up next to Archie Bray, which was a ceramics foundation for artists. And um, before I learned how to draw, I learned how to throw pots on a wheel, how to cut slabs of terracotta clay, and loved these kinds of materials. and in terms of their capacity for form making, space making. The first artists that I were introduced to were ceramicists like Ken Ferguson or Peter Volkes, and these guys had a huge impact on me. So we experiment with clay. I brought in a woman from California who threw pots for me. We cut them apart, we put them back together, we modeled with them. And now we're producing a facade in Berlin entirely made of ceramic tiles. 
So that's research at a kind of hands-on, you know, kind of making mud pies in the corner to having that research aligned with high-tech ceramic fabrication capabilities of a company called NBK, who are producing these things for us economically, sustainably, for an entire facade on a 300-meter-long building. So, so there's always a relationship between the kind of, you know, experimentation which can succeed, can also fail, and finding applications for these things. So within the scope of our own studios, which is set up to be both a place for experimentation, the workshop um, is kind of the center of the practice, sort of filtering all that work into the construction of our building projects, which we have 20 or 30 building projects going all the time at different stages of development, but that relationship is, I think, key to the kind of DNA of the practice. And do you see this kind of material experimentation happening at all different scales in a project? Like you mentioned a facade system. Do you ever do details that are maybe smaller, scaled down, like almost to the the human scale or larger, even larger structural kind of experiments in materials? Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I think, <laughs> actually that's kind of an interesting question because I think in the beginning this stuff kind of operates at a boutique scale of mm-hmm. producing interesting surfaces and interesting effects. And I think what we try to do is pull this up into the buildings at multiple scales. So we're working at the scale of large-scale structural components. For example, the Chicago smart material, you know, enormous varandial trusses, which are laser-cut. So that's very much not at a boutique scale. So I think there's been an an ambition to see this research occur at multiple scales and have multiple roles within an architecture. So it could be about surface making, it could be ornamental, it could be structural, it could be about envelopes, facade making, a chandelier, a chair. So there is a kind of, I suppose, German Gesamt Kunstwerk idea of matriculating fabrication research at multiple scales and multiple roles where we could do a building like Chicago, which is a kind of one-off and still do it for $250 a square foot. So that's a kind of indication of success to me that we can actually do these things and do it in a kind of viable and economic and build it in a year and a half kind of way. So so I think we're getting better and better at it. It's also based on opportunity. Sometimes we have no opportunity to do anything at all in terms of that. Sometimes entire buildings are embedded with that kind of thinking and that kind of fabrication. So it's really about... And it makes it interesting because it makes the practice more differentiated in terms of how we work, where we work. So we went to Korea and we produced a facade there, a reflective, like a kaleidoscope. Could never build that in Germany. It'd be too expensive. Nobody would do it. It would be illegal. You can't glue facades together there. So it's really about exploiting conditions on the ground. If we're working in Morocco, we're going to work differently than we do in Switzerland. We're going to work differently than in Korea, and, and it's not that these place, one place is better than the other. It's about what can you do there and how do you exploit that to produce a kind of architecture that is driven by and benefits by those capabilities of places, whether it's hand you know, craftsmanship at a low-tech level or a high-tech level. So I think we're able to maneuver that way or, or do. I mean, it's, it's a way of thinking.
In a more specific example of these themes we've been talking about, in 2016, the firm did the serpentine summer house with an undulating wood pattern. What formal and spatial qualities were you looking to produce with these existing materials? Well, that was really about working with a curator, and the curator was Julia Payton-Jones and Hans Ulrich um, at Serpentine, and that was really hands-on, back and forth. Julia, I think, didn't read drawings so well, but she read models, so we started producing models um, for this. We also, at some point, knew that we were working next to um, Yona Friedman, who was kind of a hero to us. So um, we produced early schemes that Julia considered sort of bad installation art. She said, I want architecture, I want form, I want space, I want all the things that, you know, architecture, you know, is about. So we started, um, again, producing a structure, not simply a form, but a structure through looping. This is something we were experimenting with, the capacity of looping, stacking loops as a structural idea, something Yona had been experimenting with for years, and then found a way to translate that into steel construction with a so-called bendy-ply skin on it. And again, these projects are prototypes. That's a project, that, that is a prototype that could scale into a factory scale at a later date. So that process was, yeah, about building a summer house in the Kensington Gardens in a certain way that had a budget, had a scale, it was temporary, but was really a, a process with those curators rather than simply demonstrating whatever we had kind of popped into our mi mind at the time. So that, that made it interesting and also in the context of the other projects at the time. I think Big did the main pavilion, Yona did a project, Asaf Khan did a project, Kunle uh, did a project there. So, so there was a dialogue between these different things, which was important. So maybe since we've been talking about it a little bit, or we haven't really specifically addressed it, but I think because we're on Rice's campus, I've seen some of the renderings for the proposed residential college. It fits very well with the existing context of Rice in that there is a lot of kind of masonry. But I was wondering how you worked with the existing context both to kind of fit the context here and also how you were able to introduce new ideas into the project or how you found ways to insert something that might not have been there before into right. the project. Um, well, it's very site specific, I think more so than say a project in uh, you know installation scale, but we're doing two projects here, right? We're doing the Sidrich, which is on site right now, and then we're working on a low-rise project for Hanson. So I think the strategy was, and just to back up for a minute, I mean, Bryce is quite unique in the sense that it's always been an incubator for architecture, much more so than, say, a school like Harvard, which has had very, very little new construction in the last, say, 30 years. So there's always been something going on there. There was always the chance. So with the first project we did, Sid Rich, I think, again, we were, we were brought in by Sarah Whiting, who was interested in timber construction. So um, that's something she wanted to introduce to the campus, which the second building will be. Sid Rich is a high rise, so uh, we couldn't do timber construction. But urbanistically, it was important for that building to mediate between Main Street, which is uh, an avenue of high rises on, on, on the other side, the medical centers, 
and the campus. So in a sense, probably the most important thing for me was urbanistically to mediate between the existing Sid Rich Tower from the 70s, which is kind of an extraordinary thing in itself, this sort of extreme high-rise construction along Main Street um, into the scale of a campus quad. So in a sense, the building and its massing for Sid Rich is really about mediating between those scales. So it was really more than a material or technological thing. For me, it was more important that it was able to mediate between those different scales. So it was really kind of a urban or urbanistic problem to do that. At the same time, I was quite interested in dealing with St. Joe Brick from New Orleans, and we went down there, and we, we went to that factory, which looks about 300 years old, and saw these guys making handmade bricks. So I think there's a kind of beautiful history. It's not just brick, but it's a brick from a very specific place, so we were interested in and, and, and looking at the colors of those, we're interested in, in producing a serrated facade so it would be three-dimensional, very plastic, have a kind of dynamic on those three building forms. I mean, the building is an ensemble. It's not simply uh, building as a one-off. So there was a kind of urban scale of it, as well as using that historical material, but for me, in a more contemporary way, I think through the surface making of the facade, through the arcades, sort of an abstraction of the idea of um, arcades. These are dormitories, but they're also common rooms in these things. There's maker spaces in these. It needed to be in dialogue with the Hopkins building next to it, um, to the formation of a quad. There's a, a terrace with a pergola over that. So there's a certain level of abstraction in terms of the things we saw here, using continuity of using historical material. Um, but in a pretty different building form. It's not the one-off historical Sidrich Tower. At the same time, we didn't, we wanted to distance ourselves from the, the postmodernism uh, of the, the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s that was quite rampant on this campus. So um, I think that was the ambition of that project. But um, those, th- those were some of the, the tasks for that building. The next one is quite different, the, the Hanson wing which we're building not far away um, from that building but those those sorts of ambitions are quite different and you said the Hanson building was in Lastenburg or it's a it will be um, <laughs> we're gonna pull this off um, it will be I believe the first prefabricated timber mm-hmm. structure on campus so we've been able to mm-hmm. achieve this is a, um, a lower rise building so it complies with code so that's going to work out Um, we're still going to combine it with brick facade which i think is consistent with it but um it looks like that project is going to succeed in the original goal of bringing um, timber construction to rice university that might be one of the few mass timber buildings in houston as well uh i think so i mean this, uh, we've been doing our homework and doing our research. This is something we've been doing in Switzerland and Germany. And most of the few, the, the first examples have been in the Northwest. So if you go to Vancouver, you'll find a high rise in timber. You won't see any timber because it's all behind gypboard for fireproofing, but it's been more accepted um, in areas which, unsurprisingly, is where the timber industry is also um, located. I think it's a big um, 
But also Andrea Lears is doing, has just done a, a timber dormitory for in Arkansas, I believe. So it's starting to, to happen, but um, it can be done. And there's enough fabricators um, for this material to bring it on site and deliver it, put it together. So we feel pretty confident that we can produce it. And we also see this as something as kind of emerging technology. I think this is going to happen in more and more universities. But I think, you know, we're very proud to be part of it here as a kind of pilot project for the university with the hope that this will have um, a kind of bearing on future projects also on this campus as well as others. And does some of that interest in mass timber not only have to do with experimenting with a new material, but also maybe turning a little bit more towards sustainability in building? I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I was a carpenter. I grew up as a carpenter in Montana. I mean, that's uh, what we built in um, uh, timber construction, log construction, two by four, two by six construction. Uh, that's where I actually started my architectural career. So, but I think in terms of sustainability, I think we, we've sort of rethought this um, term sustainability, which usually means technology attached to buildings. Sustainability also means for us um, recycling or reconstructing existing buildings. Um, that's basically what our last Princeton studio focused on. It's also um, an idea about materiality. So timber for us is a lightweight, it's easily work, uh, it's zero CO2. It's all in the timber. Um, it works now with fireproofing based on dimension. So it's something, um, it's a beautiful material. It's very humane material. So we're very happy to, to, to promote it. We would have liked to have done a timber. We just finished a project for, for Harvard, an art lab with the high performance polycarbonate facade. It's a net zero building. It generates all of its um, power. Um, it's a building that could have also adapted to timber construction. We weren't able to, but I think we're kind of at the beginning. So, I, I, you know, I, I think in the next 5, 10, 15 years, we're going to be doing more and more of this and in for different typologies, different scales, high-rise, low-rise, academic buildings, but also we're starting to do commercial buildings also in timber. And zooming out a little bit, just to talk some of our words on sustainability and materials will come into this, but looking back on your experience over the past 20 years as a firm and also just as an architect yourself, what advice would you give to young architects today looking to start their own design practice? Um, in America? Um, Not specifically I mean, this is, a, this is a really good question also because uh, this is something I'm constantly badgering my students right now, I've been teaching it for the last three years, but um, for them to really rethink practice and how they set up practice with the idea of empowering themselves in terms of what practice is, what do you do, how do you operate, and where that is. So I would really challenge the whole internship, uh, working in a large firm, potentially a commercial firm, I would really, I don't think that American architecture is in a really great place right now. And I think it's your generation's job to resituate that. So I think it, we're at a crossroads where graduating students really need to think how they work, whether that means they start developing their own projects. That was our cheap old houses idea that is a scale and scope of project which students could actually graduate and do themselves to um, I think 
thinking of ways to work differently. They may work as an artist, as an architect, landscape, developer, inventor, somehow to make architectural practice more inclusive and more powerful and more empowered for graduating students to really think that. So I, I really think we're at a, a critical time uh, to rethink how we've seen practice in the last 50, 60 years, which I think is for me, hitting a kind of dead end. And I think it's time for your generation to rethink what architecture can do, particularly at the time, and I hope some of the answers to my questions would say that what are time where technology, um, economics, development, it's something where we can get our hands on these things. We're not simply in the role of service provider to clients, but have been able to test and in a way breach some of those those barriers where we're more of a participant and less of simply uh, a service provider. So I think it's a super exciting time, but I think it's up to you guys to really get your hands on this thing. Well, thank you. I certainly agree. It'll be interesting to see where things develop in the future, both for me as a potential architect and definitely the firm. I'll be interested to see where all of that goes. So thank you for being on the podcast today, Frank. Thank you. You're welcome. For more information on Barkow Leibinger's work, please visit barkowleibinger.com or you can find them on Instagram. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete-a-Tete.